Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and our dope theme music. With Washington, D.C. once again on high alert as a crowd of ranting, raving lunatics prepares to descend on the city on September 18th for the Justice for J6 rally, a mass protest organized by a former Trump campaign staffer and loudly promoted by Steve Bannon with the intention of, quote, pushing back on the phony narrative that there was an insurrection on January 6th and to, quote, demand justice for the rioters facing criminal charges for having stormed the Capitol, whom the organizers refer to as <clears throat> political prisoners, and with the likelihood of violence and mayhem rising sharply as the right wing is in a furious lather over President Biden's imposition of a sweeping new COVID vaccine slash testing mandate affecting as many as 100 million workers, we thought it would be a good idea to check in with someone who knows as much as anyone alive about the rise of far-right extremism in America. A guy who could give us a sober assessment of the threat level we're all facing on the political violence, domestic terrorism front, not just on the 18th, but more broadly, and how well our law enforcement agencies are stepping up to deal with it. In particular, the FBI, where this fellow worked his way up the ladder to the highest levels in a long and esteemed career guy I like to call Frankie Figs, but whose real name is Frank Figluzzi. The state of our union is in peril. And it's in peril because we are divided, polarized, and most of all, we're divided and polarized when it comes to saving our own lives in a global deadly pandemic. If a culture and society can't agree on how to save their asses, then they're in peril. In his 25 years at the FBI, Frank Figluzzi went from foot soldier to field general, starting out as a special agent in 1987, working in the Atlanta and San Francisco field offices, leading the Miami field office and the Cleveland division, serving for a time as the FBI's chief inspector, and then ascending to assistant director based at FBI headquarters in D.C., and then finally, the pinnacle, being appointed by Robert Mueller in 2011 to run the FBI's counterintelligence division. After leaving the Bureau, he moved on to the world of corporate security at General Electric, handling investigations, insider threat, workplace violence prevention, and special event security for GE's 300,000 employees in 180 countries. This year, Figluzzi published an excellent book entitled The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence, which focused on values-based leadership. And of course, you probably know him best from his work as a contributor for NBC News and MSNBC where he provides a deeply informed and consistently insightful perspective on all matters related to national security, which means in these dark and tremulous and borderline apocalyptic times, Frank routinely scares the living shit out of me and anyone else with half a brain who's paying attention. I will warn you now that our talk on today's episode is likely to have that effect on you. So I suggest a stiff drink, a big bowl of high-end flour, or both as you settle in to listen to Figluzzi walk us through the many terrors all around us on the home front, from the advancement of white nationalist extremism to the very center of our national threat matrix, to the terrible admixture of paranoia and rage arising out of Donald Trump's big lie about the 2020 election, and the culture wars that Trump fomented around masking and vaccines and everything else related to the COVID pandemic, to the ways in which the radicalization of America's far right mirrors what took place before and after 9-11 around Islamic extremism abroad to a spine-tingling vision of what might be coming, not just in D.C., but all around the country, just a few days from now. Yep, I wish I could say that what Frankie Figs has to say will make you feel less fearful. And to be fair, it's not all gloom and doom, but I'd be lying, and I would never want to lie, if I didn't say that you ought to brace yourself for what the next hour or so holds in store some very, very, very scary, scary, scary visions of a near-term future filled with a whole lot of hell and high water. We're going back to the Capitol, right where it started on September 18th. And we're going to push back against the phony narrative that there was an insurrection. We're going to provide the kind of evidence that Nancy Pelosi won't allow to be presented at her select committee, showing that this was a largely peaceful crowd. 
showing that this was a crowd that was egged on in many ways by Capitol Police throwing flash flashbang grenades into a relatively peaceful crowd. We're going to continue to raise the volume and push back against this phony narrative and demand justice for these political prisoners. So that's Matthew Brainerd, a supposed Trump campaign official who I've never heard of until uh, this moment, a guy who is not he was on Steve Bannon's now increasingly and insidiously popular War Room uh, podcast. He's been going on there quite frequently of late, drumming up interest in this event that's taking place on September 18th. And we're here with Frank Vigluzzi, someone who a lot of people are familiar with from TV. Frank, good to see you. Thanks for having me. Wish we were talking about a happier topic, but here we are. <laughs> we never talk about happy topics, Frank. That's you know, Our whole relationship is based on unhappy topics, essentially. So what do you make of this thing? That was Brainerd a couple months ago when he announced that this thing was happening, this rally. He's been on Bannon and other places since then, trying to basically say, hey, it's going to be a peaceful protest. Don't worry. But there's obviously been a lot of concern among a lot of people in Washington, among law enforcement people, among intelligence people, that this could be a very bad scene. What's your current take on how much we have to fear? So I want to I want to talk about it at a very kind of micro level on what the 18th of September might look like around the country. But I really want to talk about this September 18th rally as a symptom of a much larger problem in the body democracy, right? So, you know, rallies come and go. The rally could end up being well secured and fizzle out or be peaceful. But the fact that they're holding the rally, the fact that the clip you just played reflects a sentiment that people are aggrieved, that Ashley Babbitt is a martyr, that the people being arrested and held for January 6th violence are somehow political hostages and prisoners. That's the topic of discussion. That's what puts us in peril. Let's talk first about the micro thing about the security of the day. So if you had asked me this question a couple of weeks ago about, hey, is there going to be violence on September 18th? I would have said this. I'm concerned about localized violence around the country. I think DC is going to be heavily secured. I know it is. The police, the intel community, they're all coming together on this one. Maybe the fence will go up. Maybe it'll be around the perimeter. Maybe it'll be around the building of the Capitol. But I think it's going to be, you know, with, with some scattered possibilities of fights and things breaking out on the periphery, I think it's going to be secure. That's what I would have said two weeks ago. Now, here's what's changed with regard to the monitoring the chatter on violent extremist sites, and in particular, the Proud Boys. What's changed is they are now incensed about Biden's vaccine mandates. Right. They think the sky is falling now. And they are indeed talking about violence. Now, it doesn't change the fact that DC is going to be really secure. But what I see them talking about is they use this phrase going local. So, yes, I think now incensed, they're going to show up in DC, but also, comma, State and local authorities better be ready, and DHS has told them this, because I think they are also going to go local. The reaction has been so severe and so extreme to the vaccine non-mandate, which as we know, it's not a vaccine mandate, just for the record. It's he's, you either get a vaccine or there's tests that are mandated, but not vaccines that are mandated. In any case, it's obviously not an authoritarian thing in the way it's portrayed by people on the right, but we can talk more about that in a second. I mean, I'm for it on the matters on the ground, on the grounds of public health, but just putting that aside, it did, I think you're right. It like, there was even this issue, Frank, it just, I mean, I'm not anything like an expert like you are, but what generally has happened in these situations where, and again, you will confirm that I think I'm right about this. When you have a big public thing where it's like, hey, this is going to be bad. Eventually, the next step, when it comes to far right extremism and white nationalists and so on, you then see this chatter pick up among those groups that say, hey, it's a trap. Don't go. It's going to be well secured. They're trying to bait us. This is just a one way ticket to a jail cell. Stay home. It's the things that don't get publicized, like one six, where it wasn't like people. I mean, obviously, there's a long question there about how much was known in advance, but it wasn't. Everyone was not on super high alert, obviously, where in this case they are. So you started to see you know, the Proud Boys came out and said, don't go, don't go, don't go. But this vaccine mandate thing really seems to have changed the calculus and changed the emotional pitch and the dynamics. You know, again, you monitor this traffic. I don't. But just from my distance, I'm like, yeah, I'm starting to get a little nervous myself. It's got them totally riled up, even talking about recently, just in the last few days, Proud Boys in their private chat rooms talking about how to build homemade incendiary devices. Hmm. Um, they believe this is kind of an authoritarian Nazi regime. They point out that Biden did reportedly tweak his federal employee mandate and federal contractor mandate where he could control the environment, which is to go from vaccine or tests weekly for federal employees to 
vaccines, period. Right. And they're focused on that. But here's the other component of this. Now the, the resistance to that has been mainstreamed. So I wish it were just these fringe and violent extremist groups, but they are being led and incited by now elected officials going on television saying, resist, don't do it. We're suing. And that is radicalization. Hmm. And I get in trouble every time I say it, and I no longer care because it's true. (laughs) My days in the FBI working international terrorism are now eerily similar to what I'm seeing in form of online radicalization of our own people. Right. What does that mean? What are the parallels that you can draw between those two experiences as we sit here literally just a couple days after the 9-11 anniversary, the 20th anniversary of 9-11? You have to have some form of leadership in radicalization. And we saw it getting faster and faster with Al-Qaeda and then ISIS, where young people, particularly a 19-year-old guy sitting at home in Minneapolis or Columbus, Ohio, watching beheading videos, listening to a radical cleric talk about killing the infidels. We were down to, say, nine weeks of watching videos from no radicalization to, I'm ready, sign me up, I'm ready to travel to go kill some infidels. Nine weeks the power of social media and online radicalization. That's a parallel I see now happening with the mentorship and an inciting by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and and you name them, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, everybody saying, let's resist, let's not do the mandate, this is the end of the world. That's their leadership. And that's where they seek affirmation and get incited to violence. On September 18th, you've got events that are going on in Florida and North Carolina and Washington State, but you also have events going on on the 25th in Colorado and on the 25th in Georgia and the 25th on Massachusetts and and New Jersey and New York, uh, South Carolina. So it's not even just restricted to this one date, this justice for J6 cause, which as Brainerd characterizes it, they are political prisoners, right? That's the notion. First of all, this is not an insurrection. They are parroting the line of Donald Trump and others that 1-6 was a walk in the park and that it was the cops who incited the the peaceful protesters. And now they're political prisoners. They keep calling them that. And now the thing of going local, as you've referred to it before, it's not even just isolated to one day. Mm -hmm. There are planned events now for the Justice for J6 world going on in state capitals for subsequent weeks. This is a thing that could be not just a single day threat, but a multi-location, multi-week, multi-month, who knows? rolling threat that we have to deal with in the context of a very heated political moment that you've been referring to. And I think that also multiplies the concern because it's not even just we just need to focus on one day in one city here. It's we have to focus on a lot of places and a lot of days. I'm glad you mentioned this because I want to point something out that's not getting enough coverage. You know, having now been in media, so to speak, as a talking head for almost approaching four years, I guess, I've really seen the dilemma on what to cover how much to cover, whether you're giving voice to people who don't need any coverage. But here's the thing that I think it's not getting, I know it's not getting covered. On any given weekend, John, right now, for the past few months, there are Proud Boys assemblies in cities near you, namely Pacific Northwest, but everywhere, where shots are fired. There are clashes with counter-protesters. This is now a weekend outing every weekend, and it's already happened this weekend. And yes, Olympia, Washington is going to happen uh, sometime in September, and it has been happening. A Proud Boy leader or longtime member named Tiny Toez was shot last weekend or weekend before. Nobody's realizing, except for folks who live in these poor places where they can't go downtown on a weekend, that it's already happening. So yes, you're right. And DHS has been warning state, local police departments, get your act together because this is going to continue to happen and perhaps really explode on or about the 18th or thereafter. Well, and and I think you and I would agree, and your agreement will mean a lot more than mine because I don't really know shit compared to you, but we all respect state and local law enforcement, except when it's occasionally abusing its power. But we respect the notion that there are good people in all those local, in, in city, county, stateies, you know, all over the place trying to do their best. But the way we think about the federal security apparatus, we think when the federal security apparatus is turned on, it's pretty fucking good, right? Mm-hmm. You're like, if they want to lock down a city, if the feds are on it, do you feel confident nothing bad's going to happen to a pretty high degree? Those state and local law enforcement people are underfunded. They're undertrained. They've never confronted things like this on a regular basis. It's a patchwork, you know, not New York where I live. 
after 9-11, we have essentially a paramilitary operation here that's as good as many countries, right? But there are lots of states all over this great land of ours where there are no way that the local and state law enforcement authorities are up to meeting the kind of challenge you just described, where violent clashes are becoming a weekend activity. They just aren't, they're not trained for it. Mm. They're not sophisticated enough for it. They have no real intelligence capacity to get ahead of it. It's a nightmare when it becomes a 50 state problem. There's an irony in what you're saying, and it's absolutely true, with the exceptions of like NYPD, as you're referring to, and, and LAPD, that's about it. And here's the irony. The beauty of our policing system in the United States in terms of ensuring that we don't have some kind of massive authoritarian national police department that we don't want is that, yeah, it's really broken up. You know, it's a county sheriff, it's a little town village with constables, and it's a city and state that don't even talk to each other. And there's a beauty in that because it keeps us from authoritarian, totalitarianism, law enforcement. The bad news there is when it comes to this national domestic threat, we're in trouble because there is that lack of centralization and intelligence sharing and all that. Now, that's where DHS and FBI are supposed to come in. But again, civil liberties and privacy play in and we don't have a national police force. But I am encouraged by the now regular rhythm of alerts and phone calls that DHS is having. But we're still, you know, look at what we learned just recently with this District of Columbia Intelligence Fusion Center reporting that they got on a call before January 6th with about 300 law enforcement partners and and basically said, we think something might happen here on January 6th. What do you have? But let's be careful about it. You know, that's a little D.C. fusion center trying to figure it out. That makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up when I see that reporting. So I want to come back to the VAX mandate thing, right? So Biden rolls this thing out and the backlash to it is incredibly intense. And as you pointed out, pretty much the entire Republican Party is against it. Even governors who had been broadly supportive or at least sympathetic to the Biden administration, you know, a guy like Mike DeWine in Ohio, who is one of the leaders, ran a very good public health campaign, was ahead of the curve on COVID. Even Mike DeWine, people like that are like, this is too far. And it's either they say that's because they think he's overstepped his authority or they think it's just bad strategy. They think that he's not going to have the outcome that Biden wants. It's going to provoke more resistance rather than bring people along. So you hear Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas, other places saying like that. But here's what's happening at the ground level, right? And this is my domain, is that you got, let's go to Ohio, where the governor, Mike DeWine, has been a pretty good model on COVID, but you know how the United States Senate seat that's going to be open, Rob Portman retiring, and you have two Republicans running for that seat. One of them is J.D. Vance, hillbilly elegy, fame, who's made an utter ass of himself, who had previously been an ever-Trumper and now is the ultimate Trumper, a man with absolutely no character, no conviction, no consistency. But he's running against a guy named Josh Mandel, who's the former treasurer of the state of Ohio. Let's listen to Josh Mandel, who put up this thing on Twitter a couple nights ago, self-shot from a cornfield. Here's Josh Mandel, who is, I would say right now, arguably the front runner in this very hotly contested Republican primary to win the Republican nomination for the open Ohio Senate seat in 2022. Josh Mandel. My uh, blood is boiling, enraged at what I've seen from the White House today, trampling on our freedom, trampling on our liberty, trampling on what I took an oath to defend when I joined the Marine Corps. Joe Biden, I'm not even going to call him President Biden. He's not. Joe Biden is creating a constitutional crisis. And as I was driving through this cornfield, I literally came across this sign, this Trump sign. He is my president. And I am hoping and praying that the Supreme Court justices that he appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court will do the right thing. And if they don't, I call on my fellow Americans, do not comply. Do not comply with the tyranny. And when the Gestapo show up at your front door, you know what to do. When the Gestapo show up at your front door, Frank, you know what to do. Excuse me if I suggest having once, you know, covered Donald Trump and he ran for president in 2016 and started talking about how the solution to Hillary Clinton was Second Amendment remedies. And we all said, he's talking about shooting Hillary Clinton. When I hear a guy say, when the Gestapo shows up at your door, you know what to do. I don't think I'm making a very long jump towards thinking that what he's saying is resist with violence. Yeah. If the Gestapo's at your door. That's what I hear. 
I think that that's some fucking craziness, right? Yeah. These are the kinds of words to get back to your original point. Those are the kinds of words. Tyranny, Gestapo, this is not my president. Those are the kinds of things that I don't know how you can call them anything other than incitement and radicalization. The fringe has become mainstream when someone who can utter those words is running for United States Senate as a viable candidate. And as you say, perhaps a front runner. He's the former treasurer. He's yeah. the former yeah. Republican treasurer of the state of Ohio. He's a yeah. dork. He's, yeah. he's a guy who you would have said was a nerd right. 10 years ago, yeah. an up-and-coming nerdy Republican politician in a moderate Midwestern state who's now that far off yeah. the deep end. That's where the political ground is now in the Republican Party, between J.D. Vance yeah. calling for mass civil disobedience and this guy calling for something more extreme than mass civil disobedience against the vaccine mandate seems to be calling for violence. Yeah. What's happened is here really smart people. I mean, many of the people we could rattle off, some in Congress, you know, went to Harvard, Yale, Stanford, et cetera, et cetera. These are not stupid people. So I cannot count them among the brainwashed. I have to draw the conclusion that they've decided that any values they might have had, and I question that whether they had any, have now been supplanted by the fact that the only way for them to stay in power is to attach themselves to this mindset. The big lie, the Gestapo's coming to your door, we should all be prepared to die or kill others because you know what? We don't want this vaccine that's the FDA's approved. <laughs> uh, taking over school boards, fights. You know, we right. talked about going local for Proud Boys violence. Look what's happening in school board meetings throughout this country. Fights are breaking out. People are running for school board who don't believe in science. Teachers are being threatened. It's outrageous. Proud Boys New England, about two weeks ago, published a list in their internal chat room of teachers and healthcare providers who are for teaching critical race theory or for vaccine mandates. Right. They published a list of their names and locations. Jesus. This is a violent threat to teachers, educators, and medical professionals. So that's the question I want to ask you as a national security counterterrorism expert. We knew that 30 million people or whatever believe the big lie. We know there are a bunch of people who think Joe Biden's illegitimate. We know that that's all out there. That's in the air. We know that there are these bullshit, ridiculous cyber ninja non-audits going on in various states. We know that there are these voter suppression laws being passed. We know all that's happening. We then get a thing like the Justice for J6 thing. We're going to talk more about January 6th a little later in the podcast, but we get that. Now we get the vaccine mandate. It feels to me like it's in a very toxic, combustible stew that this thing that Biden has done, I'm not blaming him. I'm for the vaccine mandate. I think it's the right thing to do. You got to get a handle on this pandemic. And I think that they have now broken glass, that this was the break glass plan for the White House because they knew there's not much else within their power they can do. It's a big roll of the dice politically, I will say, because there's not another sheet of glass to break where they have more power here. But I'm for it. But I do look at it and think, is this the final catalytic compound in this very toxic environment that sets off the giant explosion? Yeah, I've got to say, I was the first during the Trump administration to criticize Trump on his timing of things. And I caught grief for saying, hey, I think Trump is signaling people here for violence and, and all of that. And now I will say this, same thing, same for you. It's a public health emergency. I agree this has to happen. But I did cringe a bit with regard to the timing of September 18th, right? Because I saw, I was very encouraged that I saw the Proud Boys going, hey, the place is going to be as tight as a drum. Let's not go, right? Right. Now I've seen it completely flip. So I do get worried about timing, but there is no good time to announce. Good time. Yeah. You know, when do you do this? Which weekend is the best weekend to, you know, week to announce such a thing? But look, I will also tell you this. I do some consulting for security in the corporate world. Secretly, these Fortune 100 companies, Fortune 500 companies, they are thrilled with this 100 employee or more thing. Of course. Because they couldn't figure out how do you get everybody back into the office, right? Right. Now your general counsel, your corporate lawyers are going, hey, we got it. We got it. We can do this. Thank God we can get back to the office, avoid the fights sure. in the employee break room over who's doing what. Sure. They like this. And the only thing I would say is I think Biden needs to present this more in economic terms because of that corporate angle, right? You want to get back to your job. You want jobs coming back. You want to go to restaurants. You, this is the economy, stupid. It's not you're a moron for not taking the vaccine, but it should be much more of this is how we get back to work and get the economy back up. Let me ask you one question before we go to break. You know, we're familiar now, everybody in America, I, I mentioned before, we're just on the back of the 20th anniversary of 9-11 here in New York. I came back from having been away for a little while yesterday and, you know, <laughs> 
it was another one of those days. It was a 9-11 day here. It was, you know, beautiful, cloudless, dry, glorious. And we live not that far from Ground Zero, my wife and I. So it's like the after effects of the, the ceremony were here. And, you know, one of the things that 9-11 brought us was the code red, code orange, code yellow, code whatever, you know, all the codes, right? Those are things we never had in America previously. If I asked you right now, if we had a system that encompassed all of domestic extremism and terror and far right and white nationalists and all of that stuff that we're currently talking about today, and we applied that system, the color code system, where are we sitting here as we head into September 18th in your judgment? Now you're testing my memory of Tom Ridge's color code, but I think we're, I think if I've got the colors right, we're at orange, which I, I think is one step before red. Does that sound right to yes, you? The color that's yeah. right. That's correct. The, the penultimate bad. Yeah. So I, we're at orange. The next step would be red for me. And I, I really think it's all hands on deck. See something, say something, all that stuff. And, you know, you just, you've now brought up the international terrorism response that we had so successfully and, and really cleaned up all the necessary fixes that had to be made the dots not being connected, CIA not talking to FBI. I'm so happy to report that's been fixed on the international side. And the evidence, of course, we've not had an iconic attack on the homeland. Okay. But by God, it's 20 years later. Have we learned anything about applying the international terrorism fixes to the domestic threat we're facing? And I have to look at all the reporting on intelligence that was there, but not acted upon and say, no. On 1-6. We've not. Yeah. January 6th is evidence that all the great things we did after 9-11 in international terrorism have not been applied to domestic terrorism. Well, that's a great transition because I want to talk about the FBI and your career there and your time there and, your, and what your assessment of it is post and some of the stuff that's in your book. So we're going to take a break and we'll take a little trip down memory lane with Frank Vigluzzi here on Hell and High Water right after these messages. And we are back for part two of this episode of Hell and High Water with Frank Figluzzi, former FBI assistant director and author of a great book called The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence that came out in January. Frank, congratulations on the book. Before we talk about it, let's listen to the current director of the FBI. who's talked about the topic we are addressing today, violent, far-right, white nationalist extremism, domestic terror. Here's Christopher Wray testifying before Congress earlier this year. Unfortunately, as you noted, Mr. Chairman, January 6th was not an isolated event. The problem of domestic terrorism has been metastasizing across the country for a long time now, and it's not going away anytime soon. Back in June of 2019, under my leadership, we elevated racially and ethnically motivated violent extremism to our highest threat priority on the same level with ISIS and homegrown violent extremists. And racially motivated violent extremism is the biggest chunk of our domestic terrorism portfolio, if you will, overall. I will also say that the same group of people we're talking about have been responsible for uh, the most lethal attacks uh, over the last, uh, say, decade. So that's, uh, that's Chris Ray. That's not the first time he said it. It won't be the last, but he's been very forthright, Frank, about the notion that this is the difference between the era of 9-11, that the real threat we face is domestic and the particular form of domestic terrorism that we are most concerned about is not just anti-government terrorism, but is racially motivated white nationalist extremism. Do you think that, and I'm going to, I will step back and talk about your career at the FBI, but just answer me this question first. Do you think that under Ray's leadership, the FBI, it's something you were just kind of alluding to in the prior block, has his leadership in terms of action met the clarity and forcefulness of his words on this question in your judgment? I think his leadership post-January 6 has been, as far as I can tell, on the mark. And I'll, I'll explain why in a second. I think, however, his leadership prior to January 6 has been lacking. But that's complicated stuff. It has to do with who he may be, But even more importantly, it has to do with the fact that we still, John, don't have a domestic terrorism law. It's not against the law to commit acts of domestic terrorism. It's against some other laws, assault, trespass, right? But we don't have a law against domestic terrorism. And we don't, therefore, have the tools. We can't designate domestic terrorism organizations like we do in international terrorism. We can't get out in front of it. If you changed the 
religion of the people breaching the Capitol on January 6th to Islam. And instead of Oath Keepers or Three Percenters or Proud Boys, let's say they were affiliates of Al-Qaeda or ISIS, January 6th would never have happened. That's a very good baseline for this conversation. Yeah. You said you've been on television for four years, essentially, at this point, and, and that's pretty much when you and I came across each other and have had various interactions, whether together on television, me asking you questions on television. We had you on the circus, I think, once. I never really had a conversation about your background and your history. So like, you went to Fairfield University as an undergrad and then to the University of Connecticut School of Law, where you got your JD and became a lawyer <laughs> in theory. And then you went to one of my alma maters, the Kennedy School up at Harvard. And those degrees altogether could have led you in a lot of different directions, but somehow all of that led you to being the assistant director of the FBI for, for 15 years, right? 20, 25, 25 years. years. 20, I, yeah. I have a hard time with math sometimes. 1987 to 2012, that's 25, not 15 years. Uh, it's just my inability to do <laughs> no, algebra. It's not algebra. Basic, basic yeah. addition and subtraction. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Well, that's very, right. you know, look, I'm right. pointing to the problem. This is the thing. I think, I think that's calculus for yeah. me. Um, yeah. Did you always want to be a G-man? Yeah. Was that like, I want to be at the FBI and, and you did these educational things that eventually set you up for that career? Or did you stumble into the FBI? Yes, I always did. I mean, at age 11, I wrote a letter to the head of the FBI in Connecticut where I grew up. And I said, as an 11-year-old kid, hey, I want to be an FBI agent. And he writes a letter back and says, uh, and God bless him that he did that. And, and for that reason, I'll always take time to talk to young people myself about the FBI. But he writes back and he goes, hey, uh, get back to us, you know, when you're of age, here's what you got to do, you know, blah, 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 here are the qualifications. And yes, I went to law school because being a lawyer was going to be a fallback for me. I went to law school because at that time, it was lawyers and accountants that the FBI needed and wanted. And I thought I would be good at the law school thing. And yeah, and it happened. It's like a kid wanting to be a firefighter or center fielder for the New York Yankees. And somehow, miraculously, it happened. You served there under at least a Mueller, Comey, was our prior- Oh, yeah, yeah. Louis Free. Louis Will Free in the early 90s. William Sessions, William who Sessions. was a disaster. I was an intern okay. at headquarters during law school, and the director then was William Webster. So, yeah, right. a lot of directors. So, you've seen a lot of directors come and go. Tell me about that. At a place like the FBI, which is so orderly and has so much process in it, and yeah. it's a giant bureaucracy, among other things- but it's, it turns out that because it has such extraordinary power, that the character of leaders really matters a lot. Even in a big, giant bureaucracy like that, there's a big difference between how one director and another director, especially the character of the director and the relationship the director has with the White House and the political context all matter a lot. So I would love to just get your kind of 30,000 foot panoramic assessment of those leaders and who you admired the most. Now that you're out of it, you can probably say who you thought was most wanting. Who's the, the gold standard and, and who's the tin standard, so to speak, of the yeah. directors you served under? Yeah, a couple of thoughts there. First, let's remind your listeners that the FBI director has a 10-year term. That's really, really important. Yeah. Why is that important? It's designed to ensure that an FBI director remains a political straddles administrations and is not supposed to serve at the whim of a president. So I can't emphasize enough that when people ask me, you know, should Chris Ray get fired? Should blah, 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 blah. The first thing I say is as an institutionalist is yeah. be careful, be careful. If you start firing, as, as Jim Comey has learned from uh, Trump, yeah. if you start firing FBI directors, because you don't like what they're investigating or not investigating or not pledging loyalty to you, we're going to end up with a highly politicized federal law enforcement agency. So number one, I'm an institutionalist. I believe in the 10-year term. Number two, every director has left his own mark. I say his because we haven't had a female director yet. And so, for example, I'll, I'll give you examples. Louis Free, what was the hallmark of his term? He took the FBI abroad. He opened FBI offices everywhere. Today, most people are amazed to learn the FBI has over 60 offices overseas. All crime, of course, is global now. Right. So they're called legal attaches. It doesn't say FBI agent on their business card over there. <laughs> they're inside U.S. embassies, and it's all about intelligence, you know, liaison, et cetera. Okay. So that, that's kind of freeze mark. William Webster was known for bulking up the laboratory in science. That's what he left on the organization. Mueller, of course, 
The guy came into that position and in within two weeks, 9-11 happened. Imagine being the head of the FBI, not even really knowing where the men's room is. And, <laughs> and they go, uh, sir, we're under attack by terrorists, right? And you're in charge. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And what was his legacy? Without a doubt, he got us into a counterterrorism mode that ultimately kept us from getting attacked again. And he's got to be credited with that. And that was amid calls to disband the FBI. I was there when Congress was saying, the FBI failed on 9-11. We got to break it up. We heard it again, John, on January 6th. We got to have a domestic spy agency, and then we have to have a separate law enforcement agency. And when I hear people say that, I say, go have a beer with the Canadians or the Brits and ask them about MI5 and the fact that they have no arrest powers, or ask the Canadians at RCMP if they have any intelligence capabilities and if it's broken. They'll tell you after two or three beers, yeah, no, we wish we had what the FBI had. It's fascinating. And the one person you left out (laughs) is Jim Comey, who obviously has a complicated, at this point, partly because of the Showtime series that my friend Jeff Daniels played him in. Um, You know, Comey, obviously the most controversial uh, I, you know, a lot of FBI directors have been controversial. I remember when Louis Free was very controversial also, but, you know, Comey's kind of transcended that in, in the controversy department, and he still has enormously fierce, loyal defenders and incredibly intense critics. I know we've discussed this in the past, but I, I feel like you have a more nuanced view. Yeah, well, I write a little bit about this in my book, which is primarily a book about values-based leadership. Yes. And Comey really is someone you have to talk about if you talk about values-based leadership, but you also have to talk about kind of a tragic flaw that he has, which is, I believe sometimes he is so righteous. And by the way, he is a man of the highest integrity. Hmm. But sometimes I believe that translates into thinking that he's the only one in the room who can make the most ethical, righteous decision. And with regard to that now infamous press conference with the flags draped behind him at FBI headquarters announcing that, quote, no reasonable prosecutor would ever bring charges against Hillary Clinton. In that moment, most of us started texting each other saying, oh my God, he may not realize it, but he just politicized the FBI. It's not the FBI's job to make prosecutive decisions. It's DOJ's job. They're across the street on Pennsylvania Avenue. He took it all on himself, whether it was because he didn't trust Loretta Lynch, the AG at the time, whether he wanted to take that off her shoulders, whether he thought he would bring credibility to the decision. In that one fell swoop, He did so much damage to the perception and credibility of the Bureau that I have to look at him as a flawed character. Well, and it's interesting because you write about values-based leadership in the book, um, and I'm glad you raised it that directly. The thing, and I've talked to Comey about this a couple of times, he does not see this point that I'm about to make clearly. Uh, I mean, he clearly does not see this point, which is that, you know, he had a reputation, right, for being self-righteous and for believing he was the most moral man in Washington, D.C. and so on, right? Fair enough, whatever. And a lot of arrogant people in Washington, D.C., I, I get it. And I also get that a lot of people I respect think he was a person of high integrity and high character. There's a reason why policies exist. Policies exist not because any individual is going to have certain flaws, certain strengths. They're going to come to different judgments. Sometimes they have different capacities for coming to judgments, whatever. But the reason you set policy is kind of like the thing you were talking about with the vaccine mandate, which is now you can go to your employees and say, guys, there's a policy here. doesn't matter what I think. doesn't matter what you think. We now have a policy. And the policy is designed to optimize and to create the best possible outcome against and, and eliminate, in some sense, judgment calls. That's why policies are there, right? And I you know, think about Comey that in this case, it was like, dude, there was a policy here. You may be the most moral man in Washington. You analyze this thing from every possible angle, you know, how to deal with this and, you know, what the credibility of the department would be and how people would see it and how the politics would play and how would the Republicans would react and all this. Like, none of that's your job. That's why the policies exist. So you don't have to do that. You stick to the policy. That's the end of the story. And it's not even a question of whether you were right or wrong on the merits. The question is, mm. you decide to depart from policy and you yep. get yourself in trouble. You and I are of one mind on this. And I devote an entire chapter. The last chapter of my book is called Consistency. And consistency has to do with just that. Under crisis, under what seems like an unprecedented threat that's never happened before, that's the absolute worst time to depart from protocol and values and principles. Absolute worst time. But yet it's human nature, right? Oh my God, we've never seen this before. There must be some different way for me to handle this. No, no, no. That's that's exactly why practice and protocol exists. And when you depart from it, 
you are effed. And that's the problem. It's an accountability problem. He forgot he was accountable to the attorney general. He forgot he was accountable to the institution and future of the FBI. And he departed from practice and protocol, taking a prosecutive decision upon himself. I get it. He was a prosecutor for his whole career. He was the deputy attorney general of the United States. He was the U.S. attorney in New York. But suddenly he forgot, oh, I'm the FBI director now. I'm an investigator. And I varied from protocol. Big problem, even in our own lives, when we think there's a crisis that we have to do something differently to stick to your values and you'll get through it. I've covered the following presidents in my career. George Herbert Walker Bush, William Jefferson Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now Joe Biden. The obvious outlier there is Donald Trump. And in a million ways, he's an outlier, but I'm focused on one specific thing because you are, like I said, you always want to be a G-man. That's what you just told us, right? You're law enforcement to your core. And with that and what's reflected in the book is this enormous, not a blindness to some of the failings of law enforcement, but enormous respect for the people who do this work and enormous respect for people who, who put their lives on the line in many cases just to serve, right? So all of the presidents I just mentioned, all of them, some of them quite conservative, some of them quite liberal, all of them had that basic core respect for law enforcement, right? And Donald Trump would say he respected law enforcement more than any of them. And yet, to raise the topic that you raised before, we come to the Ashley Babbitt thing. I want to play Trump this summer at Bedminster talking about Ashley Babbitt. And then I want to play a little bit of the man who took her life, a cop. We'll play him back to back and then we'll come out the other side because I think it's a really important thing that's not just about 1-6, but about some of the damage that Donald Trump did institutionally in the course of his four years. So let's play first Donald Trump at Bedminster talking about Ashley Babbitt. There were no guns in the Capitol. They burned except for the gun that shot Ashley Babbitt. And nobody knows who that man were. If that were the opposite way, that man would be all over. He would be the the most well-known, and I believe I can say man, because I believe I know exactly who it is, but he would be the most well-known person in this country, in the world. But the person that shot Ashley Babbitt, boom, right through the head, just boom. There was no reason for that. So there's Trump. Now let's listen to an exclusive interview, NBC News. Lester Holt did this interview with Lieutenant Michael Byrd. 28-year veteran of the Capitol Police, who was the person who took Ashley Babbitt's life. Let's listen to what he had to say about this in an exclusive interview a couple weeks ago. I followed my training, and I spent countless years and preparing for such a moment. You ultimately hope that moment never occurs, but you prepare as best you can. I know that day I saved countless lives. I know members of Congress, as well as my fellow officers and staff, were in jeopardy and in serious danger. And that's my job. For months, he has lived in hiding. He's been the target of threats. Could you give us the nature of some of those threats? They talked about, you know, killing me, uh, cutting off my head, um, you know, very vicious and cruel things. Former President Trump has, has talked about you and this, and this incident. He says she was murdered. What does it feel like to hear that from a former president? Well, it's disheartening. If he was in the room or anywhere and I'm responsible for him, I was prepared to do the same thing for him and his family. So that guy, Michael Byrd, who Donald Trump considers a murderer of a martyr and who uh, was trying to protect the Capitol, trying to protect all the people who work at the Capitol, trying to protect all the elected representatives who serve in the Capitol, right? I just find it so astonishing, Frank. I mean, there are so many things to say about this, but he's the one president who, despite all of his ostensible claims to being the most pro-law enforcement president in the history of the United States, blah, blah, blah. It just seems so like on its face, one of the most astonishingly appalling and anti-law enforcement positions you could possibly take is this position that he's taken. And we've seen Trump do this on some other things before. I mean, it feeds into so many other things, but it's so glaring to listen to Trump and then listen to that guy sitting there having to say, yeah, my president of the United States is calling me a murderer. I think Trump's statements are clear evidence that he will drop you like a hot rock if it's politically expedient or smart for him to turn on you. So he has turned on law enforcement with that approach to Lieutenant Byrd's actions. 
he's decided it's smarter politically to side with uh, Ashley Babbitt as a martyr. I wrote a column about this for MSNBC Daily. I've got a regular column there. And I this is kind of more personal for me. Yeah. There was a time in my leadership journey in the FBI where I was an inspector. There were only nine inspectors in the FBI. It's a senior executive position. And then I ultimately became chief inspector of the FBI. What did that mean? Well, among many other things, it meant that I had to lead investigations of use of deadly force by FBI agents. I know a thing or two about how you evaluate a shooting. And I'm here to tell people that I actually think that amazing restraint was exercised by police officers on January 6th. Amazing restraint that I don't think I could have exercised. I'm surprised we only had one police use of deadly force on that day, quite honestly. Now, with regard to Lieutenant Byrd, here's the standard that's applied. You know, most Deadly force policies read something like this with police departments. An officer has to be in reasonable fear of imminent death or serious bodily harm to himself or others to use deadly force. It's really pretty simple. And if you want to look at that shooting in a vacuum, which President Trump has chosen to do, an officer shot a woman, an unarmed woman through a window. Uh, Okay, then yes, you should be outraged by that. (laughs) But you're choosing to ignore the entire context of the story which is what he's hearing over his radio, the fact that he has 60 to 80 members of Congress and staffers right behind him, that he literally is that thin blue line between death and them, and and that he's hearing that officers are down, there's explosives going off, right? He's mistakenly heard that an officer may have been shot. He realizes this crowd is intent on killing. And yeah, he did the right thing. And three investigations have found that he did the right thing. So this is all politics, nonsense, and it's about as anti-law enforcement as you can get. It is obviously all politics and obviously all nonsense, and and we agree it's anti-law enforcement. You know a ton of people through those 25 years that we determined once I figured out how to do math, 25 years there. You still have a lot of friends in the FBI. You talk to them all the time. I know you do. If there was a lasting impact on the FBI specifically and on law enforcement more generally of the way that Trump behaved and continues to behave, what do you think that is? And how do you think so far Joe Biden has done at the job of trying to restore morale, restore credibility, Mm -hmm. do all the things that we knew he, his FBI director and his attorney general knew that they had a big job ahead of them to try to fix some of the damage that Trump did? So first, with regard to the damage done, before we get to the repair job, it's not overly dramatic to say that the damage to the FBI's public perception was devastating. And I continue to worry about an FBI agent displaying his or her credentials at some citizen's doorstep and asking for help. On any case, whether it's a kidnap, a terrorism case, organized crime, whatever, I get very concerned about the damage being done by those who believe because of Trump that the FBI is part of a deep state, it's highly political, et cetera, et cetera. The damage is severe to the reputation. And I can't think of an agency in the government that is more dependent on its public brand and reputation for the success of its mission. I don't think there is any other agency that depends on branding more than that. Okay, the repair job. When Biden took office, I was immediately asked all over my TV appearances, what's he got to do to help restore the damage to institutions? And my answer was very simple. Stay the hell out of the way. In other words, let the career professionals do their job. And that's true for how he interacts or chooses not to interact, deliberate, I'm not bothering you, with DOJ, Centers for Disease Control, even to his own detriment, quite frankly. I think that maybe he needs a little more interaction with CDC. But, you know, stay out of the FBI. Don't have dinner with the FBI director, where it's just you and him in a room. Bad, 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 right? So so (laughs) I, I think that has been the greatest thing, is stay the hell out of the way. And there's evidence that that's happening. What's the evidence at the FBI? I'll give you a couple of things. We get little glimpses, John. Every once in a while, we get a glimpse of how the January 6th investigation is going at the FBI, right? And people are up in arms about, I don't see anybody getting arrested at a high level. We get little glimpses. One glimpse was, this is from an NBC News reporter who got his hands on an FBI interview report of, I think, an oath keeper who was interviewed because of January 6th. Yeah. And a question that was asked was, do you know anybody in Congress or any staffers in Congress? To me... That's one of these major case investigation, standardized intelligence collection interview questions, right? In a major case like this, intelligence analysts give the agents 
questions to always ask. Just always ask this, right? right? Yeah. That yeah, yeah, sounded yeah. like the always ask them if you know Congress or staffers. That's a very encouraging sign. The more recent sign that we saw was an Oath Keepers lawyer, the lawyer for the Oath Keepers organization just announced the FBI took my devices. They got my phone, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what did we learn about that? It was a search warrant. And in court, the prosecutor told the judge about this, hey, it's part of a seditious conspiracy investigation. Wow. So there's another little glimpse that they're looking at seditious conspiracy. So I say this, John, because you asked me, what's Biden doing to help repair? He's yeah, staying yeah. the hell out of the way and let them do their job. Yeah. That's a, actually a great answer and a great transition because I now want to, I do want to focus on the 1-6 investigation, what the select committee is doing and what kind of reactions it's provoked that I think are quite telling from one side of the political aisle. So let's take uh, another ad break, sell some consumer products to help this podcast stay afloat. And we'll come back on the other side and talk some more with my friend, Frank Figluzzi, Frankie Figs here on Hell in High Water. And we are back for the third and final section of this episode of Hell and High Water with Frank Figlusi, former assistant director of the FBI and MSNBC, NBC News analyst, contributor, brainiac. It's funny, pre-Trump, there were not that many jobs available for people like you, Frank, on cable news. And then all of a sudden there was like a growth industry. And luckily, you've even with Trump gone, you've survived and you're still out there uh, making us smarter every day on TV. I appreciate well, that. You say, luckily, and I am lucky to be a part of that organization. However, I will tell you this. I wish there weren't a need for me to constantly go on and talk about crises, law enforcement crises, intelligence, national security threats. It's bad when I'm on. It's bad. Of course. Of course. But you also make us smarter about important things that matter. And so um, I think it's good in that respect. Thanks. So let me play a little sound here as we start kick off here. Yep. The 1-6 Select Committee under the leadership of Benny Thompson with a couple Republicans on there who people don't in the Republican Party don't think of as Republicans anymore, Adam Kinzinger and, and Liz Cheney, now the vice chair of it, they're doing their work. They've had a hearing. They're working somewhat to some extent in public and some extent in private. One of the things they did was they went to telecom companies and to social media companies and said, we have a bunch of information we want about 1-6. So please preserve those records for us. And Kevin McCarthy and the Republican Party, particularly in the House, flipped the fuck out and started threatening those companies and said, do not comply. Just like, do not comply with the vaccine mandates. Do not comply with these requests from the select committee. We want to get to the bottom of this, but you guys should not comply. That's the position of Kevin McCarthy. That drew this response from Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren on MSNBC not long ago, raising a rather important question. Let's hear what Zoe Lofgren had to say. Well, I was astonished, frankly, by his statements. Number one, there's no basis in law for it. Uh, and number two, as you point out, it is a felony uh, to obstruct a congressional uh, investigation. But the real point is, what's he hiding? Why is he trying to keep the truth from coming out? I, you know, I think the leaders of our country, and Kevin is one of them, should be stepping forward and trying to get to the bottom of everything that led up to January 6th. And people who aren't doing that are, are a mystery to me unless they participated. I don't know. Is it a mystery to you, Frank? <laughs> There's. It's not much of a mystery to me. People who are protesting too much are often people who don't want truth to come out. One of the things that I, I look at in terms of judging threat and craziness is the degree to which people are willing to undermine their own authority. So we now have members of Congress who you would think would want to preserve for the future, for future Congresses, even for themselves someday, if their party comes back in power, the ability to conduct an inquiry and subpoena and collect records. And they've decided that, no, 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 no. For this moment in time, we really don't want anybody complying with a congressional request. Now, you know, in a heartbeat, if they take power, they'll open inquiries and demand people comply with their requests. Look, I think this is right on the line for possible obstruction of Congress. I think that there are public corruption, federal public corruption violations in kind of a, like a reverse quid pro quo. A lot of people became familiar with quid pro quos 
during the Trump administration. But there's another form of violating federal corruption laws, which is to threaten somebody with official action if they do or right. don't do something. Right. Think of your local mayor, council member threatening somebody that, hey, if you do this, I'm going to screw you officially with my power. That's against the law. And so we're right there. We're right there with, with his comments. And God bless the carriers, the platforms that are complying with the request. Now, it'll be challenged. There'll be legal challenges and all that good stuff. But this has to happen. We've got to get to the bottom of this. And the records, let, people say, well, what, what's the big deal? The, the National Archives has all those official devices and electronic communications for the White House. What, what's the problem? The problem is they're just that, official devices and communications. I'm, inter- yeah. I'm interested in the private. The unofficial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unofficial. I want those yeah. private phone calls and emails. So give me your sense of how you think the committee is doing so far. You know, some of us have been pretty balls to the wall about this from the very beginning. And we're like, if you believe that the big lie is poisoning our politics and raising to the point of existential crisis, what's going on in the country right now, which is where I am. I think that this is the most important work Congress is doing. And I think Congress is doing a lot of important work on the economy, on healthcare, even on voting rights. I think this is more important than all of it because the reality is it's now going to be portrayed as a partisan outcome. I know I'm not a fantasist. I'm not naive about this, right? But I do think it's super important There is truth and there is reality and there is a way this committee proceeds in the proper way with a due aggressiveness where we can learn a lot, if not everything, a lot about what happened on January 6th. And we still, there's so much we don't know. And so I'm like, you guys got to go hard, pipe hitting, subpoenas, take people to court, no holds barred. We need to know what happened before, during, and after this event, if we're ever going to heal as a country and get past this world where there's this, and I'm not sure we can, but I know the only path is through that path. So I ask you, as you look at how they're doing so far, I said something about how I was encouraged by their behavior up to this point on television the other night. Neil Katyal said he agreed with me, except he thought they were moving too slow. So I'm curious whether where you are on how well Benny Thompson and his team is doing and whether there's any area where you'd like them to do something different or more. Well, okay. So first, the painfully slow part is the negative part of this. I think they lost momentum by taking the break after the very compelling officer testimony. The nation was kind of really paying attention and they lost that. But I'm going to come back with, you know, my, it's a human nature thing to say, this is urgent. Where's the sense of urgency? Keep moving, keep moving. But then there's some evidence to show that, "Mm, okay, maybe there's a method to this, to this slowness. I also get concerned that we're losing the the concept of three equal branches of government. And by that, I mean, we had four years under Trump of people thumbing their nose at congressional subpoenas and requests to testify. And that's, that's a horrible thing. When I heard that they were issuing what I call pretty please letters to the telephone carriers and the providers, I thought, God darn it, why are you doing that? Why not a subpoena? But now that so many carriers have complied with the pretty please letter, okay, that is tremendously helpful legally, right? Because even in my law enforcement days, if you get a consent form, some, hey, can I search your home? Can you please sign this consent form? And I don't need a search warrant. There's no legal challenge, right? Hey, he consented. Uh, he gave me the records. So there is beauty in that. But at some point, I want to see them restore the use of, of a congressional subpoena, and it'll get tested. I love the fact that we have two, for the moment, Republican members of the select committee, I, I think they're moving to bounce them off out of the Republican Party. Um, but now you could say, technically, it's bipartisan. I recognize that much of the American public won't pay any attention. But if you get those phone records and you expose those conversations and the timing, and you get people saying, I refuse to show up and talk to you under threat of penalty of law, then I think people are going to see them for what they are. I would love to see a sergeant of, at arms visit McCarthy's house and and drag him uh, into testifying. Right. We'll see what happens. Well, and I would like to see something more than that. I would like to see that happen. And I really do think Kevin McCarthy should testify. I think Jim Jordan should testify. I think a bunch of these people should testify, number one. Number two, if they are going to resist subpoenas, they should be hauled in, sergeant at arms, or thrown in jail and, and put in contempt of Congress if they won't testify. And then the third thing, And the one other place where I have criticism is I would love to have seen that officer testimony in primetime. I think they would get the time. I think if if Kevin McCarthy or Jim Jordan are compelled to testify, I think the networks would happily 
let them do that in prime time. I mean, not happily, depending on the time of year and what sporting events are competing for audience. But I think they could have certainly over the summer, they could have claimed prime time on the three major broadcast networks. And I, I think that's another thing. I think it should be a little more creative about use of media. Again, it won't mean everyone believes in them. But if you want to get overcome some of the problem, which is people not paying attention, is shove it in people's faces and make people watch this stuff. That's, you know, part of why the Watergate Committee was so powerful back in the early 70s was that it was on in prime time for people. And, and I think that they should do that. You know, I, I guess I ask you this question on the back of that. One of the things we saw when the officers testified, I think, I think that turned my stomach in a way that few things, else, few other things bad have done. Watching those officers testify, tell their stories, grippingly, compellingly, authentically, sincerely, I felt grateful to them for their service. And then to see Fox News, to see Lori Ingram and others get on television, not just dismiss them, but to call them crisis actors, say that they were making this shit up. Uh, I thought it was one of the most like morally depraved things I've seen in media really ever in my career. And it, it gets to the depth of the problem we have, Frank, right, which is that there is not going to be anything like consensus on the outcome of this situation. And I guess I ask you, as you think about what that means for your line of work, what is that? Has that feed the threat assessment if you're thinking about this division in the country and the depth of it and the alternate realities that people live in and the misinformation, the disinformation and Donald Trump and what's happened to the Republican Party. Like, as you look down the runway in terms of thinking about the intensity of the threat and the long range of the threat, what do you see over the course of the next, not just weeks, but months and years to try to deal with this extremism threat, this white nationalist threat, this domestic terror threat. How does that all play out in your mind? I have to tell you, and at the risk of sounding really dour, I don't look at the future with encouragement. I am very concerned that the, the division we're experiencing now has become entrenched mostly because of media. And I include, in a big way, social media on this. It is radicalization on steroids, division and disinformation. Throw in foreign adversaries who've now figured us out and figured out the use of social media, the Russians and others now who are going to go, wow, we can absolutely impact how Americans think about everything, even a deadly pandemic, even vaccines. And this is our future. We are watching the future right now. And it doesn't bode well for law enforcement and intelligence work. We've got to shift this. It's going to be kind of a constant whack-a-mole. I, I, I recall sitting in meetings during my career at FBI headquarters around the table every single morning with, with Mueller, who had all his assistant directors at the table, and hearing the counterterrorism leadership. I was the head of counterintel. But hearing them talk about this, the, the dilemma of playing whack-a-mole with al-Qaeda uh, sites, social media sites, you know, chat rooms. And do we take them down? Do we put an undercover agent inside the chat room, what's the value, what not, you know, take it down now. They're talking about exploding something. This is now what essentially is going to be the future of domestic terrorism work is, you know, when do you take it down? It's a new world we're living in. We're divided. We can't save ourselves from a pandemic. This is where we're going. And I believe, uh, sadly, that we may have a kind of permanent insurgency developing within our society. Let me ask you one last question, and I'm super grateful for you taking all the time today, but let's wrap this up with trying to get to something, if not optimistic, then constructive. And you just raised the social media companies, right? Which anyone who's worried about misinformation, disinformation, and all of the stuff we've been talking about today, you know, focuses now on Facebook, primarily on Facebook, but also on Google and on Twitter and all these other companies, right? There are many people who think that the moment now is ripe for some form of new regulation, laws that could be passed things that we could do to lessen the damage that those companies continue to do going forward in this sphere. So I ask you, because you are, I, one of the things I most respect about you is that you always talk about these issues related to law enforcement, counterterrorism, and so on. You always couch them in the context of, we must be tough, but we must also respect civil liberties. We have to balance these things. You're constantly making those references. I think it's super important and it gives you a lot of credibility. So there are civil liberties issues here. There are free speech issues here. There's all that stuff that has to be weighed out. And I know you're not Solomon. You don't have the perfect, probably have a, a magic, so to speak, bullet here. But what do you think, practically speaking, from a law enforcement perspective, but with an eye always on civil liberties and, and our genuine freedoms of free expression and so on, what do you think would be a really concrete, a, one or more concrete 
plausible, practical steps that we could take to diminish the damage that these platforms do in this realm, can do and do do. So first, I am for more regulation. And you don't need to listen to me. You need only to listen to the statements of CEOs of some of these very platforms. They are telling you, we can't do this anymore. We want some more regulation. We need it. They are not media. They are much more like public utilities that cry out for regulation. So number one, yes, I'm absolutely for regulation of social media. It's an extremely dangerous tool if we don't get a hold of it. And they admit that themselves. Number two, the U.S. government rates the safety and maintenance records of airlines. You can look up the safety record of your airline you're about to get on. And I think one simple step, and this is, again, the Facebook and other CEOs have said they're, they're good with this. Please rate us, rate us as a government on our propensity towards safety, security, and accuracy and our relationship with the government and taking down dangerous, violent posts in policing ourselves, please rate us. And as someone who has grandkids now, I'd love to be able, you know, when they get some, someday when they get of age to even open a computer, I would love to say to them, you seem to be frequenting a site that is a C minus in accuracy and safety. Let's get off of that site. So that that's a start. If we can do it for airlines, we can do it for social media. They want that. And they they want it because some of them are doing really good jobs of it. You know, Facebook, I've got serious issues with Facebook, but do you know something like 20,000 people, employees come to work every day at Facebook under the rubric of safety and security? 20,000 employees. They do it pretty well and they want credit for that. And they want, they want Parler and Telegram. They want them to get dinged for not doing it. I get it. Right. Let's look at that. Let's build some incentive structures. Let's get, in addition to some sticks, let's get some carrots. I think we probably need both carrots and sticks. Frank, I'm with you. I'm worried. And I spent a lot of time in a state of deep concern about all these matters. I can't say that I think talking to you, given all of your knowledge about this stuff, that makes me feel particularly any better. But I always think that knowledge is power. And I always think that understanding the nature of the threat is the first step towards overcoming it. And it's going to be a long road, but the first place to to start is to get your arms around it and be open-eyed and candid and realistic about what's going down. And I think you play an incredibly valuable role in helping people to understand what's going down. So thank you for doing that. You're very kind and you do the same. I think we'd be missing and regretting the opportunity uh, and the platform we've been given if we don't do what we can to kind of save what we have. The one and only Frankie Figs, you know, makes you sound like a mobster and you're the furthest thing from a mobster. But uh, thanks for taking the time today to be on Hell and High Water. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Frank Figluzzi for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. And Christian Fidel Castro Russell is our executive producer. 